Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the, Sa and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come draw uh, and uh, assemble yourselves and come draw near together you survivors of the nations they have no knowledge who care about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a god that cannot save declare and present your case let them take counsel together who told this long ago who declared it of old was it not i the lord and there is no other god besides me a righteous God and a savior, there's none, there's none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Good morning, Trinity. It's good to be in Arizona with you. Uh, as has been mentioned, I live in Washington, D.C. I have three toddlers at home, and uh, whenever I told them I was coming to spend some time with you in the desert, my aggressively affectionate daughter, Caitlin, said, now, Daddy, if you see a snake, you run as fast as you can back to the plane, okay? <laughs> I'm still here. My name is Drew Allen Spock. I serve as one of the pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, I bring you greetings from both our congregation and our leadership. We pray for you and are laboring to be witnesses with you as lights to what Jesus has done for us sinners. First, I simply want to say uh, thank you to Malachi. It is not lost on me, brother, that you were installed as the lead pastor of Trinity after 10 years of faithfully laboring for this congregation. And it strikes me as extremely humble for you to entrust anyone, but particularly me, who brings you no notoriety or reputation uh, to preach on the Sunday following your installation. Uh, thank you for this privilege. Uh, I admire you for that, and I hope your congregation does too. I think there are other pastors that might see this Sunday as their debut, and uh, may God multiply your ministry through your humility. Trinity, I also come at, with a word of gratitude to you. This church gave $16,000 to help a ministry called Nine Marks, where I serve as the development manager, serve pastors in East Asia. So I just want to begin with a word of gratitude. Thank you for helping us do this ministry. Uh, our team has gone to work to put your investment to work. Uh, here's how. At the, the bottom of the bottom, Nine Marks believes that the best way to fulfill the Great Commission is through healthy local churches. We exist to help pastors understand the church. Practically speaking, a pastor's job is more than just helping individuals on isolated spiritual journeys. It's about leading a united corporate congregation in worshiping God together. The difference is an isolated soldier 
versus the army of the Lamb. This is all over the Bible, but sometimes it requires a little bit of help to see it. I know this is true in my own life, but I will tell you, once you see the church in the Bible, it is impossible to unsee it. So how is your gift helping pastors in East Asia understand the church? Three ways. First, your gift is helping to translate books to train pastors to understand the church, its value, its purpose, and its mission. Second, your gift is helping Chinese pastors gather together at events to teach one another and help each other grow in understanding and practical skill to serve as under-shepherds of our great chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, your gift helps us create an infrastructure so that pastors don't just see each other one time at an event, but can actually build trusted relationships where they can lean on one another for counsel, questions, and even for encouragement as they war for the king of light against the domain of darkness. Resources, events, and networks for building healthy churches. That's what Nine Marks does, and that's how our partnership is helping to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far reaches of the globe. Thank you for joining us in this work, and please pray with us that your investment will, resert, will result in eternal fruit. So as I stand here with you guys, thanking you for a global partnership on this Mission Sunday, I just want to ask, why do we do this? Why are Christians spending time and money and effort scheming so as to partner, so as to take this news about Jesus Christ to the far reaches of the globe? Why? What's the reason to pool resources and strategize and problem solve and partner? Well, here's why. Because the Lord, the living God of the Bible, is the only God. And he is the only God who saves. If you're not there, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah is a book about both judgment and salvation. And God calls both his own people and the nations to account. It's a book with some very uncomfortable and some very glorious stuff in it. Some have called Isaiah the Romans of the Old Testament. It's a good comparison. You guys have been going through the book of Romans as a church, and you know that in Romans, God calls both the Jews, the bloodline descendants of Abraham, and the Gentiles, those whose lineage does not trace back to Abraham, to account. By chapter 3, both the Jews and the Gentiles are exposed as transgressors against God, and as a result, every mouth is stopped, and the whole world is held accountable to God. And then, gospel, rescue, salvation from wrath and judgment by Jesus Christ, the God, Son of God, who laid down his own life as a wrath-bearing, penalty-paying sacrifice for sinners. The letter goes on to show that Jesus Christ is God's fulfillment to his promise to Abraham to bless the nations through him. And he doesn't just stop at Abraham, he continues to go back even farther, showing Jesus is a new Adam who succeeded in righteousness where our fleshly father of our race failed in sin. Romans is a journey from the depths of depravity to the heights of a new Eden. And that beautiful theology moves to a practical request for financial assistance for Paul to go on a mission. He wants to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to Spain. Isaiah walks a similar arc. Don't get me wrong, there are some distant differences. One of the main differences is that Isaiah is before the cross, right? Isaiah saw dimly what Paul saw with inspired clarity. Another difference is just the labels, right? In the, the book of Romans, those who belong to the lineage of Abraham are called the Jews. Isaiah calls them Israel. And then you've got those who don't belong to the lineage of Abraham that are called the Gentiles in Romans, well, Isaiah calls them 
the nations. The labels are different, but do you see how the circles that those labels point to points to the same thing? Those who possess God's covenant promises versus those who are strangers to God's covenant promises. There are some differences between Romans and Isaiah, but there are also some striking similarities. Isaiah is a journey from creation to new creation, from judgment to salvation to glory. And it concludes with none other than the new heavens and the new earth. The book begins by God calling the sons of Abraham to account, as well as these oracles of judgment against the nations. But then the scales seem to tip from judgment to salvation. The central historical event of the book is when the king of Assyria comes knocking on the door of Jerusalem with a military threat. But then an angel of the Lord shows up and strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, sending King Sennacherib back to his own capital city with enough casualties to stay away for good. Salvation. This rescue kicks off a generally ascending and increasingly glorious progression of hope that terminates in the new heavens and the new earth. On the journey upward, we see glimpses of Christ in the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And then we, as we are on our final ascent, as we approach the pinnacle of the new heavens and the new earth, we read these words from Isaiah. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. Isn't that awesome? A people under God's own judgment saved by God and sent by God to the nations. Our passage is about halfway up this glorious ascent. And so as uh, our brother Lebrecht read, there's a refrain that shows up in our passage that the Lord is God and there is no other. That is why we do missions. He is the only God, and he has called all people everywhere to bow, to submit, to swear their allegiance to him alone. But the reality is there are places and there are people where this is not true of them. They do not acknowledge God as the only God. They do not swear allegiance to him alone. In the language of our passage, these people are incensed against our master, and that is a dangerous place to be. They are left to face divine judgment without a savior. In this sermon, I will seek to encourage and persuade your soul of this reality. If the Lord, the living God of the Bible, is the only God and there is no other, then our God should be everyone's God. If the Lord, the living God of the Bible, is the only God, and there is no other, then the God that we worship today should be the God that everyone in all the ends of the earth bows down and swears allegiance to. That is a big claim. So practically, we're going to ask the question, why should we swear allegiance to the Lord and work hard to encourage others to do the same? Three points for today. Point number one, because the nations will bow down. This will come from verses 14 to 17. Point number two, because God has spoken up. This will come in verses 18 and 19. And lastly, point number three, God has spoken up, commanding all to turn to him. Nations shall bow down because God has spoken up, commanding all to turn to him. My prayer for our time is that our allegiance to the Lord would be strengthened and our manner of spiritual warfare would rest in the power and the command of God. Let's get started. 
Why should we swear allegiance to God and work hard to encourage others to do the same? Point number one, because nations shall bow down. So as you look down at your Bible, let me just give you the quick structure for our passage. So you're going to see in verse 14, it says, thus says the Lord, the Lord is going to speak. And then in verses 15 to 17, Isaiah is going to respond. And then look at verse 18. It says again, for thus says the Lord, and the Lord is going to speak through verse 23. And then in verse 24 and 25, Isaiah responds to the Lord. So starting in verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you. As we've already noted, looking at the skeleton, our passage begins with God speaking, thus says the Lord. And he's specifically speaking about a day, a future day that has not yet come to pass, but will. You can see the evidence of this future-oriented promise with all the shalls over and over. They shall come to you. They shall follow you. They shall bow down to you. They will plead with you. The Lord is promising a future day when the nations will bow down to his people. Now, this promise is not new revelation to Isaiah. In fact, it's a really old promise. When poor-sighted Isaac was blessing Jacob, the very namesake for the nation of Israel, he says in Genesis 27, 21, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. So it really comes as no surprise that the Lord would make such a promise to the sons of Israel, right? In fact, it's quite fitting. But, friends, these words are pretty unexpected. First, it's surprising who these words are spoken about. Egypt, Cush, the Sabaeans. These nations aren't Israel's buddies. In fact, these nations are their enemies with a long history. Their family lineage splits at Noah. Egypt famously enslaved Israel, inflicting them with harsh afflictions. To say that there's some geopolitical baggage between the nations and Israel is an understatement. These nations have harassed and threatened Jerusalem's safety for generations. And now they're bringing them their treasures in merch. Surprising, right? But perhaps even more surprising than who these words are spoken about is who these words are spoken to. The you in our passage is God's people, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Earlier in Isaiah, Israel's residency in the promised land is not taken for granted. It's under constant threat. Humanly speaking, a serious military threat comes against them and puts them in danger. And then that's followed by Babylon in the remainder of the book. But the military threat pales in comparison to the Lord's announced judgment to exile his faithless people for idolatry. The standing expectation for Israel's residents is not safe and secure in their capital city with the nations flooding in with their gold and silver, but rather to be exiled outside the borders of the promised land as captives. The generosity of God to the very people who rebelled against him. Our passage starts out with the former captives now ruling the nations. The nations come in chains and bow down in submission. This is the triumph of the captives over those who harass them. Their enemies lie prostrate before them and plead. Why? The passage tells us, surely God is in you. And there is no other, no God besides him. It's because of their God. They have the real God, the true God, the only God. Trinity, this is what you have to offer the world as a church. It's not your beautiful building, though this place is sweet. 
It's not your relationships, though I will personally attest that your hospitality is top-notch. It is not even your service. It is your God. He is God, and there is no God besides Him. It's popular right now to invite people into your community. You can invite people into your sports community or your fitness community, your food community, your work community, your education community, whatever community. And y'all, don't get me wrong. The church is a community of the deepest kind. We are a spiritual family. But make no mistake about it. Our coworkers and our friends and our family and the people that we love, they can build amazing relationships with us and still be damned. It is our God we want them to meet. He is God, and there is none besides them. And here's the thing. The nations are bowing down in chains. Oh, friends, will our hearts not be moved to compassion? This promise is a thrill to exiled Israel, but it is an ominous future to the nations A future day will come when they will bow down and they will acknowledge Yahweh, the true and living God, as the only God, but they will do so in chains. May our hearts be moved to pity. Rich nations, populous nations, powerful nations with lots of gold and lots of goods and lots of people wearing the shackles of prisoners. Nations, shall bow down. God has promised it and it will come to pass. That's why we do missions. We don't want the nations bowing down in chains. We want the nations bowing down in joy. And consider this. Most of us here in this room are the nations. Unless you can map your lineage back to Abraham, the nations that Isaiah is talking about is you and me, our children and our children's children. Y'all, if we will not be moved to pity for others, will we not be shrewd enough to desire pity for ourselves? Isaiah responds to God's promise in verse 15. Truly, You are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Isaiah just called God a God who hides himself. Because What everyone could see around them, the nations prospering and secure, Israel under threat and going into exile, is completely the opposite of what you see with your eyes. I'm reminded that the nations are marching around proud, and I'm reminded of an occasion where I love the game of golf. I played in a golf tournament called the Texas Father-Son And it's common in golf tournaments to where they had these welcome dinners. And so they had this amazing spread that was on this pool deck in order to welcome all the teams. And one thing that you'll notice about pretty much any competition is before the competition starts, there are lots of people strutting around. And then the competition gets going and there's less people strutting around. And then the competition finishes and there is really but one who is strutting around. So here I am strutting around at this welcome dinner that's on this pool deck. I'm going to get my food and I walk into this uh, kind of corridor where a waitress walks in, kind of the same one. And so I'm trying to be polite and so I say, oh, come on. And so I take one step back with my right and one step back with my left and it's kind of shaky, and next thing I know, I'm in the pool. (laughs) With the entire tournament field watching. And so I go and get my dinner, and I eat it very wet. 
and I show up the next day on the first tee and I don't even get to say my name before our playing partner says, you're the guy who fell in the pool, weren't you? (laughs) Y'all, the nations may be strutting around right now, but it's still the welcome dinner. And I will tell you that the day is coming where their secure footing will be shown to be on a pool deck where they will fall into the pool. And don't miss the reason why the nations will fall. Why are their faces shamefully laid in the dust? The nations are bowing down and confessing our God as the only God while wearing chains of subjection because their own dead idols have failed them. Isaiah speaks of heaping shame and utter confusion. You could just hear them talking, how did I ever end up this way? I was so rich, I was so powerful, I was so famous, my life was so enviable, my reality so secure. Why am I now ending up as a slave bowing down to my enemies on their turf? Why am I lying prostrate to a God that I did not choose for myself? Friends, here's the answer. They swore allegiance to the wrong God. Their hope was in lesser gods who are no gods at all. And when Yahweh shows up, their fake gods will be powerless to protect. They have man-made pieces of wood and stone to contend with the God who thunders from on high and sends fire from the heavens. In contrast, Israel is saved with an everlasting salvation. They are protected from shame and confusion to all eternity. Oh, just take a deep breath. Acknowledge the safety to have the true God as your God. No wonder we call him Savior. Why should we swear allegiance to Yahweh and work hard to encourage others to do the same? Because a future day is coming when the nations who trust in dead idols will shamefully bow in submission to the only God. Out of mercy, out of pity, out of compassion, we do not want the nations bowing down in chains. We want them to know the God who will never fail them. Nations shall bow down because point number two, God has spoken up. He has publicly declared that he is God. Verse 18, here's the beginning of God's second speech in our text. The Lord's first going to make a declaration. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. That's a big windup. What does this preeminent God who created the heavens and formed and filled the earth declare? I am the Lord and there is no other. What an emphatic declaration. What an exclusive claim. Our God has spoken up. I am the Lord and there is no other. Our God says, I alone am God. And he didn't whisper it like some secret behind locked doors under the cover of darkness. Keep reading. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, Speak the truth. I declare what is right. This declaration that God alone is God and there is no other God besides him is a truthful, honest, and transparent statement. It's not secret knowledge. It's public news. Trinity, one practical effect I hope this sermon rests in your soul with for the rest of your days is that you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt 
that God himself has simply, plainly, clearly, and publicly said, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have friends, and I'm sure many of you do too, who will say seemingly humble things like, you know, I don't pretend to know everything. I haven't read everything. And so I can't really say with confidence that you fill in the blank religion is wrong. That sounds very different and sometimes even feels right, doesn't it? How could we Christians be so arrogant as to claim that everybody else is wrong about God? Church, here's our response. Have you read the book? All cards on the table without the Bible, if religion is just my words versus your words versus his words versus her words, you know what? Our friends are probably right. But if you open the book, if you read the words, if you wrestle with the claims, there's a reality that God has spoken from on high in very unambiguous terms. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I don't know a more elementary or clear way for the Lord to say that. He's already said it twice and there's three more times to come. God has spoken up. And if you are here and you are looking for God, I want your heart to celebrate right now. You have found what your soul has been searching for. The God of the Bible who made heaven and earth himself has told you, I am the Lord and there is no other. And he's telling the truth. He's declaring what is right. Oh, stop looking for other gods. There are no other gods. And here's the thrill. That same God did not say, seek me in vain. Go try, but you'll never find. This God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Will you do that? And kids and teenagers, I'm talking to you, eyes on me. Nail this down today. Settle this in your heart that the Lord is God alone and there is no other. If you do this, you will find yourself with an anchor for your soul that your friends will lack as they struggle with all the claims and lies that our world will so alluringly put in front of you. So at, at lunch today, what I want you to do is I want you to ask your parents how acknowledging the Lord as the only God has protected them in their lives. And I want you to ask them, how has this belief been challenged in your life? It may be a good conversation. And if you do that, if you commit to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, just buckle up. You are in for the ride of a lifetime. The nations cannot plead ignorant. God has spoken up, declaring that he alone is God. And point number three, declaring and commanding for all to turn to him. The Lord follows his declaration by issuing three sets of commands that start in verse 20. First, the Lord commands the nations, come to me and stop praying to fake gods that can't save you. That's my paraphrase of verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Second, he commands to listen to the, uh, for the nations to listen to him over any other. The picture is a courtroom where the nations draw together 
aggregating their wisdom and their skill to craft the case, presumably against God's declaration of soul ownership as God. Verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. The nations have a choice. They can listen to their defense counsel or the Lord's declaration. Don't we face this dilemma all the time in our lives? We can have God's word and what people are telling us in front of us every single day. And here's the tough part. I have a friend who says, self-justification is man's most clever moment. It's true, right? Think of the times where you've stumbled. We do something wrong. We try to create a defense. We fortify it, trying to make it strong and airtight by appealing to great thinkers or powerful people. But no amount of human wisdom can ever overcome what God has spoken. It is a uh, completely futile affair. God's declarations stand while the counsel of men falls. And so the Lord says, listen to me over any other. And third, God commands the nations to turn to him and be saved. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. God commands all the ends of the earth to stop, listen, and turn to me. Stop praying to idols that can't save you. Listen to my words instead of making your defense and turn to me and be saved. Trinity, our efforts in evangelism aren't a man-made church growth strategy. We are not just trying to fill pews or cover a budget. Our evangelism is obedience to the God who commands all the ends of the earth to stop, listen, and turn to him. We do not go out with human hype. We go out with divine command. This is a global imperative we get to go to anyone in all the ends of the earth and say with God's authority, turn to God and he will save you. Who can find a justified reason to disobey that heavenly command? What will we say? But Lord, I'm afraid. Stop. Listen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. But Lord, I am needy. Stop. Listen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. But Lord, I am ashamed. Stop. Listen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. But Lord, I am strong. Stop. Listen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. But Lord, I am oppressed. Stop. Listen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. But Lord, I am guilty. Stop. Listen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. But Lord, I've sinned against you. Stop. Listen. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth 
for I am God and there is no other. There is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Do you perceive the mercy in this heavenly command? Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. Consider the check the Lord has to write, not only to invite, but to command the nations to turn to him. Just think of the mountain of transgressions that all the ends of the earth has piled up against God. I mean, just even to think like my sins piled up and yours and yours and yours and we're not even out of a strong Bible-believing church and we go out into the street and we find his guilt and her shame and this and that guy's iniquity around Phoenix, around Arizona, around our nation, our world. We're not even done yet. There's the sins of this generation and the last one and our grandparents and back and back and back and higher and higher and higher and higher. The roof blown off. The skyline is surpassed. The mountains transcended. The stars eclipsed. Transgression and offense against God up to the heavens. How can a holy God whose very presence is a death threat to sinners issue the command, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth? I will tell you how. The God who issues the command satisfies what he has demanded. For us, And for our sake, God himself came down and was born as a son of Abraham. But unlike the descendants of Abraham, the incarnate son of God added nothing to humanity's tower of transgression. And as the sole and solitary sinless man, Jesus Christ was qualified to lay down his infinitely valuable spotless life as a ransom in a substitute for sinners like you and me. That's what a righteous man is doing, dying on a cross. He's taking the sins of the world on him and taking them down into the grave and burying them once and for all. He is paying the penalty of death for sin. He is showing the evidence in the currency of blood as evidence for death paid for sins. That mountain of darkness that stretched up into the heavens, he has swallowed up forever. The cup of iniquity that was filled full, he is drunk to the dregs. Jesus Christ took God's blow for us. Tell me that's not the best news in the world. In Isaiah's words, he was pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Can you imagine the shock on Isaiah's face if he saw the suffering servant as the resurrected king? Jesus did not stay dead. He got up from the grave and went up to heaven where he is currently reigning alive and ready to save all who would stop. Listen and turn to him in faith. What a price tag for the Lord to put on this command. Our mission's efforts are not fundamentally procured by dollars and cents, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why on Mission Sunday, we talk about the king who went down into death and conquered our sins. And more than that, we talk about the king of the heavens who is alive and one day coming back for us. And on that day, all the nations will bow 
For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isn't it true? Who is like our God? Who issues a command for all to turn to him that will cost him his very own son's life? That Gentiles, the nations like you and me, might turn to him and be saved and find welcome in the household of God. That's why we do missions in hard, foreign, faraway places. And it's also why we share the gospel in places that are near and personal and local. Some in this room need to go next door and tell somebody about Jesus. Some in this room may need to cross their own hallway under their own roof and tell somebody about Jesus. And some in this room may need to go to the far corners of the globe to declare the excellencies, to spread the news that God himself has satisfied what he requires. To offer the invitation, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I don't know who you work for, but I know this for sure. Being a servant and an ambassador of Jesus Christ is the highest privilege of your entire life. It far outweighs anything that you will ever achieve. And this church is evidence that God did not issue his command in vain. We are the nations, the survivors who have turned and been saved before the end has come. What a joy to bow to the Lord in worship instead of chains. Our God has had compassion on us. In his first speech, the Lord spoke of nations judged. Yet in this second speech, he speaks of the nations saved. He declares that he is the only God. He commands all to turn to him. And he finishes with this emphatic promise. Verse 23. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. The day is coming. It's not yet here when all will lie prostrate before our God. How sure can we be? Our text says the Lord swears by himself because he has none greater to swear by. It says he opens up his mouth in righteousness because no lie can taint its trustworthiness. And the Lord sends out a word that will not return because there is no changing his mind. Nations be warned of the coming judgment of God. Paul in Romans, y'all read this a couple weeks ago, quotes this divine warning. In Romans 14, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The day of accounting is coming. All will face God as judge. That's why we want all to know God as Savior. Stop, listen, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah responds with the only armor strong enough to survive the day of accountability. Verse 24 in the close of our passage. He says, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Friends, if Isaiah, 
a bloodline descendant of Abraham and a prophet of God to the nation of Israel says, only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. How much more for us. Our hope and our salvation are only in the Lord. We are, if we are not in him, then we are in trouble. But if we are in him, then we are eternally safe. That's the comfort of grace. Amazing grace to have God's own righteousness accounted to us only in the Lord. Let us swear allegiance to God and work hard to encourage others to do the same. Shame is reserved for those who come in opposition to our God, but justification and glory for those who are found in him. If the Lord, the living God of the Bible, is the only God and there is no other, then our God should be everyone's God. That's why we do missions. We want the nations to join us in swearing allegiance to Christ, the only Savior of sinners. That's why we write books and translate them and train pastors and plant churches and send out missionaries because the Lord is the only God and the only God who saves. We don't want the nations bowing down in chains, but in worship. The nations will bow down because God has spoken up, commanding all to turn to him. Some will continue trusting in powerless idols. They will bow in chains of subjection. But for those who stop, listen, and turn to Jesus Christ, salvation has come and the future is bright. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Trinity, do not grow weary in doing good in your mission's efforts. Swear allegiance to the Lord and work hard to encourage others to do the same. That's not my suggestion. That's God's command. We worship the only God and the only God who saves. Let's pray.